This is Efficiency On Demand. On Demand. High Performance. Leadership. People think overwhelm, craziness, craziness. No time. No time. No fun. No fun. Just work, 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 work. It's time to slow down, to speed up. You owe more to yourself. This is Efficiency on Demand with Monique. Monique is a high-performance and leadership specialist. During the show, Monique and her guests will share the harsh truth behind their success stories, what it means to perform on a high level, and to be a leader in this world. It's time to take control of your time and live life limitless. This is Efficiency on Demand, and this is your host, Monique. Welcome back to another episode of Efficiency on Demand. Today I have an amazing guest who is his own commander in chief, as you can see. Maybe you can't see it because you may not watch the video. <laughs> <laughs> But I want to welcome Yuri Kruman into the show today. Hi, Yuri. How are you doing? Hi, Monique. Thank you for having me on. It's really a pleasure to speak with you. Yeah, thanks for being here and having the time. So with every guest, I just give a very, very quick run-up. But I want to know from you who you are, where you're from, and what do you do? I'm just a dude who lives in Brooklyn. No, but uh, professionally, I do HR consulting. So I work with fast-growth fast companies to build out their HR. And then aside from that, I do executive coaching. That's kind of the, the core skill set. Also, the greatest enjoyment for me. I get to hear people's stories and help them to make sense of them. Other things uh, that I do, I write as well. I speak, you know, I'm also a father and a husband and I have uh, three kids, two girls and a six-month boy. So Amazing. that's a bit about me. <laughs> I love it. So we talked a little bit before we started the conversation and I know about you already that you're basically a child of an immigrant single mother in now in Brooklyn, mm -hmm. but it's been a while that you grew up in Kentucky, right? Yep, yep. It's not not the usual place one uh, ends up as a Russian immigrant, but that's that's that was our fate. That's what we did. Right. Tell me a little bit how that went. And it's a broad question, but I leave it open because just tell me everything about it. Well, okay, so I was nine. That's what I've, uh, from all my conversations, I kind of like tried to gauge, you know, where, where am I in the continuum of, uh, I guess, Russian immigrants? Mm -hmm. People that come before nine, they tend to either forget the language or they, they tend to not quite relate their identity that much to Russia, you know, to, mm -hmm. I mean, it's not just Russia, it's also the Soviet Union. It's a, it's a very particular set of, associations, rules, mentality, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it was a special place, which we hope will never, ever repeat itself in history. <laughs> And then after nine, mm -hmm. basically, people tend to associate much more of their core identity with where they came from. Right. So in, in a very strange sense, I'm kind of like exactly on the cusp because I came at nine. So linguistically, that's, you know, a huge tribute to my mom. You know, I, I speak not, not only I speak Russian, but I also write. And, you know, I've kept up a pretty solid level, despite, you know, not, not necessarily having a lot of uh, Russian surroundings. Because even though we live in Brooklyn, we're not surrounded by Russians. Brooklyn is a big place, contrary mm -hmm. to what many people think. 
so it's it's this very strange balance between like I, I have a very strong Russian identity in terms of how I see certain elements of the world. Mm-hmm. And it took me a long time to kind of get out of that. Um, I don't know if, uh, to what degree you're familiar, but basically a lot of a lot of Russians, you know, coming out of the Soviet Union had trouble even smiling. Just, just you know, Americans are running around smiling everywhere. Hey, yes, nice sunny day, unicorns and rainbows. And Russians are like, are you touched in the head? Like, what, what's what, what's your problem? <laughs> what, yeah. what the hell's wrong with you, right? So that kind of cultural difference where people are, you know, relatively open. Of course, everybody has their passive aggressiveness and all that stuff. But something about being in America is like, okay, we're like, we're just, we're more less open. Like, we're not, we're not doing double or triple speak. We're not, you know, trying to be something that we're not, at least not, not in like, like among kids. We know when you're nine, it's, it's just like straightforward playground rules. So I came at nine and again, we arrived in Kentucky. Kentucky is not exactly a place you would think of as, you know, the most cosmopolitan, whatever. But in fact, we ended up in Lexington, which is actually, I think it's something like the fourth most college educated town in the U.S. Mm. You know, it's full of, uh, professionals, university professors, you know, we were part of a really great community, Jewish community there that had a lot of Holocaust survivors, a lot of people from New York. So it was actually, in some ways, incredibly cosmopolitan. But not not only that, I just, I was very fortunate to grow up with people that I had every, you know, reason to respect and learn from and understand their stories. You know, people that, for example, survived Auschwitz or maybe they, they knew Schindler, you know, but not, that's not the only subject, obviously. But, um, you know, just to, to be able to grow up in, in kind of at the feet of people like that, I was incredibly fortunate. So that's, that's how I got my proverbial start. Yeah, so that's, that's... That is definitely a start. And, I mean, you know, and I repeat it just for the podcast listeners, this may tune in for the first time. So I'm from Germany. And we get to hear everything about the Holocaust, the Second World War, Hitler. When I was 12 years old, we actually visited a concentration camp, which was nearby my hometown. I'm from East Germany. I'm very close to the Czech Republic border. And so what happened was that I feel like our tour guide, which sounds already pretty obscure to have a tour guide for a closed concentration camp, but... We had a tour guide and he was very excited to share that history with us. And so he locked our class like of 30 kids, 12 years old, into one of the gas chambers and turned on an air wolf. There was no gas inside, but he just turned on the air and then he told the story. Imagine there are Uh hundreds of people in here and now all the gas floods in and everything. And we were like, oh, okay, yeah, mm -hmm." And one of the girls completely just fainted because she was so anxious. She was like, she couldn't get this out of her head. (laughs) So one of the ways that we learn about the Holocaust is, yeah, that was one of the ways. So share a little bit about me, not about me, share with me about the Soviet Union that you have experienced, because that's one of the things that we share, even though it's from two different sites. Uh So first of all... (laughs) You must love Russians if you're from East Germany. <laughs> I don't I know do. if listeners have seen the movie The Lives of Others, but I highly recommend it. Yeah. Yeah, it's a little different equation these days, you know, for the last 20, 25, 27, whatever years. But uh, yeah, the Soviet Union was a very unique 
you know, place and time, uh, place and in, in, in space as well. It was a place that was incredibly traumatizing for, you know, 100 and however many, 150 million people at the least, never mind the, the tentacles around the world. It was a place that had its own very specific rules about not not just you know the kind of uh, the the laws, but also the unofficial laws. You know, there's a set of laws for regular people and, and another set of laws for the ruling elite. And you know, you had uh, shortages of food, you had famines, you had. I mean, massacres, you had all kinds of episodes, especially under Stalin, where people were sent to Siberia and never heard from again. A lot of, you know, just incredibly difficult things that many people may not be familiar with just because they may not have studied that history to a great detail. In my case, I would say that I was in some ways fortunate that I have I have that experience uh, I guess baked in if you if you follow epigenetics and and sort of the impact of trauma on past generations, whether mm-hmm. that's related to Holocaust or something like political repression. Apparently, all of that stuff stays somewhere in in your DNA. So you know, for better or for worse, somewhere in there, you know, I was I was lucky. I was born in '83, so I didn't experience anything like Stalin. You know, my grandparents. You know, so I guess. I was lucky that I grew up in the latter part. I didn't experience necessarily as a kid a lot of that repression, but there was a lot of kind of like keep your mouth shut. You know, don't say certain things. You know, certainly don't do certain things and kind of like keep to yourself. Don't trust anyone. So there was a lot of that sense because, you know, Big Brother is watching. You know, in East Germany was obviously the same, just Mm -hmm. arguably a more efficient apparatus. (laughs) Stasi. Stasi, yep. Yep. So... Basically, you know, the closer you were to Moscow um, in the Soviet Union, the the more intense the scrutiny was by the KGB and all the you know the the various state apparatus apparatuses. <laughs> but again, I just kind of grew up with that awareness that kind of like you know keep to yourself, don't rely on anyone else, don't ask anyone for help because you don't want to be beholden to anyone. And you know, there's then there's a whole other layer of being Jewish. You know, the Soviet Union had an official. Uh, officially unofficial or unofficially official policy of anti-Semitism. Uh, mm-hmm. So examples, again, a lot of people don't know about this, but I think it's really worth mentioning. Like my my parents both, they could not get into, they nevertheless, because they were really good in terms of their grades, they were able to get into Moscow State University, which was uh, the best, uh, you know, several faculties. But most Jews, they had to be not just the the best in terms of, but they also had to imagine this, right? You're you're entering college, right? But you have to because you're a Jew, you have to pass a graduate level exam. Yeah. And they do this on they did this on purpose, right? Because they did not want to include Jews. They didn't want Jews to go to certain faculties, especially things like uh, physics, uh, math, etc. If you were really that good, that and there were there were quite a few people that um, ended up, let's say, doing nuclear physics work or you know working on uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles. I mean, all kinds of things that were secret and and so on. A lot of them were Jews, inevitably, because you know that's you had to be the best of the best, and as a Jew, you had to be just that good because that was your only way to a respectable life. Mm-hmm. So you know you had to be a doctor, a researcher, you know some kind of high professional in order for not not just to make a living. And no, nobody except if you're a party official really made 
make a great living unless you were smuggling something and then they catch you, you die. But essentially, that was the only way as someone Jewish to, to, to you know, make a living, but also to have a respectable status in society so that you would not necessarily expect somebody to run after you with the stake, you know, Jew, Jew, Jew. That happened plenty. Yeah. And it's still happens even though life life for Jews in Russia is actually dramatically better these days, interestingly enough. So it's a bit of background. Right. Would you say today, so you're living now in Brooklyn in the US, is there any parallels that you see, first of all, in how how the country is kind of developing, but also in the anti-Semitism? Because we know we're talking a lot about racism these days, and I'm not sure that anti-Semitism is um, often included in the conversation. Thank you for bringing that up. That's unfortunately, it's anti-Semitism is arguably the the oldest uh, oldest racism in the world. For whatever reason, it's been around ever since you know Jews have been around and have been surrounded by enemies, whether in exile or in Israel itself. The Jewish case study, if you will, is is very strange. It's very bizarre, and uh, I'm I'm talking about it in several layers. Number one, historically, Jews have been you know a pretty small tribe, right? Or even if it's 12 tribes, I mean, any way, any which way you slice it, Jews have never been a large group. And, you know, I think the largest number of Jews that there have, have ever been in the world at any one time has been something like, you know, I don't know, 21 million. I may even be exaggerating. That's it's a pretty small percentage. But somehow, despite going through exile for 2000 years, right, uh, the modern state of Israel um, was only founded in 1948. Despite that, Jews have always had a continuous presence in the Holy Land. Despite being kicked out by kicked out and massacred, really massacred all over ancient Israel, before it was called Palestine and any of that stuff, Jews have been again dispersed all over the world. So you had people in Germany. It was called Ashkenaz. So people that are Ashkenazim, you know, they tended to live in Germany. And then because of the way that Germany was structured, you know, you have a local prince. He invites the Jews, let's say, as tax collectors, because under Christendom, you're not allowed to collect taxes. So bring in the Jews to do the, the dirty work. And then eventually the people get really pissed because who are these guys collecting taxes? And then there'll be a massacre. The prince sends them out because it's unpopular. And they, they go over to another town. They go to Poland. They go to Russia. So these kinds of dynamics, if you if you kind of really dig in Jewish history, they've been around for a very long time. And, mm-hmm. you know, in, in the the world of North Africa and the Middle East, where Jews also uh, were dispersed all the way from Morocco to India, all, all over the place, there were Jewish communities. There also, right, they, there was coexistence until there was usually a massacre sometime close to, you know, 48 to 50, because, you know, Arab neighbors suddenly turned on, on the Jews and then a lot of Jews flooded to Israel and so on. But the point is somehow, despite all of this, massacres and repressions, what happened under the Inquisition where Jews had to either convert or be killed, what happened under pogroms in 19th century and before in Russia and Poland, somehow, and again, I, you know, I'm being an Orthodox Jew, I have a pretty clear idea of why. Despite all of those things, if you're kind of looking across history, you don't find anything like that. You don't find a group that despite, um, again, now we're kind of you know getting to the, the Holocaust part, right? Where six 
million people, including a million children, were, were killed. Um, despite all of that, thank God we're not just still here. We're not just still kicking. Thank God we have our own nation. We have our own state. And it's the refounding of an ancient state, which was ours. So this, on paper, again, you're looking at, you know, across historical, you know, if, if you do historiography, right, if, if you read your Spengler, for example, you just don't find anything like that. I mean, there are plenty of ancient tribes. If you look at who are ancient Greeks, where are they? Gone, right? The modern Greeks have nothing to do with ancient Greeks. Mm-hmm. If you look at Romans, modern Romans have nothing to do with the ancient Romans, right? If you look at uh, Goths, Visig- Visigoths, etc., dissolved, gone, poof, right? Celts, you look at pretty much any, any ancient tribe, and with very few exceptions, it's gone. It lost its identity. It's melted into something else. And yet, you know, Jews managed not to just keep certain things, but they, they managed to keep all of the traditions, even if it's slightly different, let's say, Ashkenazi, Sephardi, Mizrahi, et cetera. The, the core is exactly the same. The, the services are the same. The traditions are the same. And I, I don't know how you want to call it. Is it, you know, is it a miracle? Is it because, you know, any number of reasons. But the point is, it doesn't make sense. When you look at military history, same thing. When Israel was attacked by six Arab nations in 1967, Six-Day War, it also you know, makes no sense. How, how is it that Israel was not just able to fight back, but to reconquer you know, and beat all of those armies, which vastly outnumbered it, and to do it in six days? You know, these, these kinds of things don't make sense, whether you look at it in in conventional history, historical terms or military history. So for whatever reason, here we are, but you know, thank God. So we got to, we got to do our job. (laughs) So do you think that there should be more conversations about how anti-Semitism looks these days and how we can change that? Yeah. Uh, The trouble with anti-Semitism, it's always rearing its ugly head, right? Again, we mentioned that um, example of German let's say towns, right? With a prince, all that stuff back, back in the yeah middle ages, I guess it would have been up to about the 14th or 15th century. Uh, then mm-hmm. there was some consolidation and all that. I'm not a historian, so forgive me if I'm messing up the dates, but okay. same idea, same, you mm-hmm. know, anti-Semitism would come because let's say things are going really well and, Oh, look at those Jews. They're, they're taking it all right. Or mm-hmm. at the same time, you have other people, they're like, Oh, Oh, look, you know, those guys, they're, they're always dragging us down. So like things that don't make any sense together. And you see this same kind of narrative play out in Tsarist Russia, right? And never mind Soviet Union when it was updated for a mo- more modern audience. But basically, look at those guys. Like whatever they're doing, it's, it's something something weird, right? They're, they're taking all, all the money. They're, you know, they're taking all the this and that. And it's like, what are you talking about? You're just looking for a scapegoat, people that have no rights in society, people that have always been scapegoated, and it's just serving your own political agenda. And it's no different today, right? Today, it's in different terms. Oh, you know, it's I'm not anti-Semitic, but, you know, Israel is blah, blah, blah. It's the same thing. If you really dig at what it is, that's the modern anti-Semitism, that mm-hmm. Israel is the root of all evil, and, and, and look, uh, they're influencing... First, it was neoliberals, then it was uh, conservatives, and, and then there's always some conspiracy. It's always somehow related to Jews did this, Jews did that, and it's, it's like things from opposite sides of the spectrum. 
Jews are all very rich. Jews are all very poor, uh, all, you know, too educated and too much control, or, you know, they're pretending that they don't have any control. It's just that's what anti-Semitism is. It, mm-hmm. it makes no rational sense and it keeps cropping up in different forms, including in our modern day. In, yeah. On both sides. It's not mm-hmm. necessarily, you know, I wish this wouldn't be true, but it's no longer a marginal belief. It used to be not too long ago, but now you have, you know, crazy right-wingers running around shooting up synagogues. And you also have, you know, the ultra-left um, running around and delegitimizing Israel and, and trying to do things through BDS. Mm-hmm. So it's the oldest evil, the oldest racism in the world that has zero basis. It's not rational. But that's what it is. For whatever reason, that's what Jews have to deal with today, just like before. Mm. So when you then moved to the U.S., you were nine years old. Your mom was a single parent, you said, and you moved with your sister. Is that correct? Sister and mom? Yeah, my sister, she's nine years older. So she actually started college back, back in Moscow. Mm-hmm. She got into the Fashion Institute there, and it was like a huge deal. You know, most people didn't get in on the first try. So she came to visit. And my mom was like, look, I'm not letting you back to that hellhole. And she she ripped her ticket. She was hysterical. Like, no, no, you ruined my you ruined my future. Da, da, da. She she got it together. She went to New York and she got into FIT, Fashion Institute of Technology, and she got on her path. And it didn't didn't take her long. That's that's my sister. Amazing. How was it for you as a nine-year-old? You had to learn a new language. You had to <laughs> smile when you didn't feel like smiling. You know, oh, yeah. try. <laughs> That was tough. Right? Uh, trying to fit it. It's very interesting because it's hilarious when you mentioned that I, I wanted to love because we as Germans are always told that we are like cold-hearted and so distant. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> no, we're just not superficial and fake. We just... Oh. Did I say it out loud? I think so. Anyways, so it's, <laughs> but it's, you know, like we, we do not, it get mostly, now it kind of changed a little bit, right? But uh, like in my generation, like we used to just, you know, if we find a joke funny, then we laugh about it. And if not, we just look at you as if like, you've just told me that your chicken got cold or whatever. And I'm like, okay, whatever. It's- so, and I think we have something in common there with the Russians mm-hmm. and also like Czech and Polish people, I guess. We're all a little bit more yeah. yep. serious, you know, and we don't, uh, we're not overexcited about everything. We're not thinking everything mm-hmm. is super awesome. Yep. And, yep. Uh, and it's very interesting though. So how did you get along with that? I have to preface by saying that I guess I was always, even for a Soviet kid, I was probably a little bit too serious. So for me, it was like, like come on, people. Like, do, do you not see what I see? Like, what, what, what's going on here? Why is everything funny? Or like, you know, I, I, I'm an old soul, I guess. It has its good things. It has its bad things. It's mm-hmm. a little bit tough to get along with people when you're just a kid in school because everyone's like, what the hell is this guy? So my, my reputation was like, okay, he's a quiet one. He gets good grades. Like just, okay, you know, you can like sit next to him and copy from him. <laughs> You'll get a good, te- get a good test grade. Um, and then senior year in high school, I kind of started coming, coming out of my shell during the student council, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, growing up, Part of it is also because my, my mom is a scientist. She's a neuroscientist, PhD and all that stuff. She's she's a brainiac. I mean, there's, there's no two ways about it. My mom is one of the absolute most intelligent people I've ever met, and by by a large margin. 
So I got exposed very early to all kinds of incredible books, so whether that's uh, fine literature or you know talking about linguistics since I was like seven, she, like exposed me to that. To you know the best film in the world, the best art in the world, the best music. So in a way, my childhood was anything but conventional, and in you know the way I look at it, it's almost like I was in exile, <laughs> like within within this land of the free, where I'm like looking around, like okay. I, I just it's it's hard for me to relate. Mm-hmm. I was I was very kind of like cerebral in my own head. And it took me, I guess, getting to college and, and sort of like really seeing, okay, wow, there's this whole world there beyond beyond the books and also beyond Kentucky, right? I went to, to school in uh, in Philly, uh, UPenn. And it took me about two and a half years because I was pre-med. I hated this stuff. Like, I, I you know, I love uh, science. I love biomedicine, but not not through that kind of like, you know, sausage grinder scenario, which is essentially what it is. You just, you know, you take the course, you do the exam and then like you just goes one in one ear for the exam and not the other and then you have to redo it again at a higher level for grad school and med school and so on i just it, it was never my way of learning it's not my world view so i had a lot of trouble my grades sucked i wasn't going to go to med school <laughs> so it took me about two and a half years before i was supposed to go to spain actually for study abroad you know mm. kind of like Re- rejoin my European brothers, and I, I broke my wrist, so I still I still have the the scar there, and I, I completely messed up. This is what the Soviet mindset: don't ask for help, don't rely on anyone. Like it's all you, it's all on you. So I completely effed up my grades. So I had to, I had to be average. I needed to go, and then I, I just it was the worst semester I've ever had. And I get a call right before I'm supposed to go. You're not going anywhere, buddy. You gotta stick around. Okay, so I stick around. I started taking courses in, you know, let's see, German literature. I started taking courses in much more in anthropology, which is one of my majors. I started doing a lot more humanities, and I just, I loved it. For me, it was, it was like, not only was easier because I just enjoyed it much more, but that's, like, for me, it took a very long time to understand something incredibly obvious, mm-hmm. that, you know, I'm, I'm much better at language and psychology and, and kind of the humanities filter for things. You know, the math and science, it's still very rigorous. And, you know, I did work in science. I even did a year of grad school in neuroscience. But it's it's not really the, the layer that, that excites me the most. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's, I guess, that's part of figuring out your identity and then what, you, you know, what you're meant to do and serve whom and, and how. Right. So what would you say was your biggest challenge in being... I don't know if you felt like you were in a limbo between your Russian identity and your new American identity or wannabe American identity, if you even tried to create one. What would be like the biggest challenge there for you? I'll, I'll give you a scenario which I think is very illustrative. In high school, uh, we had a yearbook uh, benefit, trying to raise money. It would never, never, never pass these days. But back then, late 90s, you know, still things were not not too... Uh, too crazy. So I wrote a skit where I'm the leader of the school's underground communist club. Okay, imagine that, right? And I have three friends of mine that are part of the club, and they're kind of like, you know, doing soft sabotage. So there's my my um, Iranian friend, who's my oldest friend, and he's like, you know, uh, Mehyar Mehyarovich, like just screwing around totally. Then I got Boris Borisovich, my, you know, my Russian Jewish friend from Israel. Igor Igorovich, uh, just a Russian guy. And like all of us were in this club and they're like, oh, did you like, did you manage to get us A's in English and in math? We're like, 
just screwing around, right? We got the ace because we're, we're good, not because we're sabotaging, but it was, it was just, it was fun. Yeah. And then we had two Americans also part of it. Like a guy, one guy's Jimbo, one guy's John. And then uh, we had, uh, imagine we got a teacher, our U.S. history teacher, Mr. Pope, to run out on stage. Ah, now I got you commies. <laughs> and I'm like, put up your dukes, as they say. <laughs> so that's that's kind of like, you know, breaking down the barriers, right? It's it's mm-hmm. the kind of thing where, especially when you're out, you know, in Kentucky in the middle of the country, they're like, oh, you're Russian. Oh, like, yeah, you, you must drink vodka five times a day and you're, you must be a chess grandmaster. Yeah, and very good at math. Oh, yes, yes, absolutely. And very, very, very much so. You have to overcome things with humor because otherwise, there's a great quote by Oscar Wilde. If you want to tell people the truth, make them laugh. Otherwise, they'll kill you. It's a very good quote and it's very yeah. true. Yeah, it is. You know, so these days, these days, imagine doing a skit like that in school. That would never fly. Nobody, nobody would let that pass. Right. And for me, it, it took a long time because like, you know, nominally, OK, I'm I guess nominally I'm American. I sort of like pass for it. You know, I, I can I can like quote baseball statistics. I can do the same for NFL, basketball. Like you just you learn because sports is the is the language, the, the lingua franca. Mm-hmm. So I, I learned from an early age, like, okay, watch your ESPN and, and, and do your homework and, and get your A's and you can always talk to people. But in college, it was like, okay, you know, there are other Russian Jewish kids that grew up in Brooklyn. And it's like, that's a lot more conventional of an immigrant experience. I also never really felt, felt part of that because, again, the priorities are very different. The conversations are very different. And it's it's a little bit like that. Because I'm like, I'm a Kentucky kid and like, you know, this, you know, brainiac who grew up with, with his mom and like always in the head and all that stuff. So it took me a while. Like, I was like, okay, like, no thanks. I didn't want any of the Brighton bitch, Brighton beach, Brighton bitch, whatever, yeah. garbage. <laughs> I didn't want any of that. Thank you. That's not me. That's not how I see myself. So I kind of like, I drifted away from that, even mm-hmm. while I'm taking Russian literature courses, things like that. And it took me a long time time through my 20s to to come back and say, okay, you know, that's that's part of what it is. I don't care. I'll go to Brighton Beach. I'll get my caviar. I'll get my bre- black bread and, and butter and all that stuff. And I'll enjoy it. And I'll laugh about it. And, you know, I have, I have yeah, Russian-speaking friends, you know, Jewish, non-Jewish, whatever. We can laugh about it, right? So there's kind of like this middle place also because it's New York. In New York, you have all kinds of gradations, all kinds of levels, every kind of background. So you can pretty much find a community for yourself, no matter how much of like an outsider of an outsider of an outsider of an outsider you are, mm-hmm. which for me, that's what it is, right? I'm a, a Russian immigrant who grew up in Kentucky. Uh, I became Orthodox, you know, as a Jew over time. So that that's kind of like ex- excludes <laughs> 80%, then 90%, then 90%. And eventually it's like, okay, well, there's like, you know, three three friends I have and we're very close and that's it. That's we we get each other. We don't we don't have to BS. Yeah, and then so that's that's the immigrant experience. I'm I'm glad that it's right. here. <laughs> yeah, and you don't need more friends, place. right? Like we say, you better have a handful of friends than like a like a back full of enemies. I think is that like how it goes. Well, I'm not better so sure, one, but <laughs> like it's a German it's a German saying. But um, basically, it, the saying is like um, you you better have the Less friends, but higher quality. Better one friend in the hand than two in the bush. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. 
something uh, like that. No, it's... I I think like no one else other than you and me understand that. <laughs> <laughs> High five. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Efficiency On Demand with Monique. Monique. We'll be right back after these messages. But in the meantime, find more resources at EfficiencyOnDemand.com. Hey, everyone. This is your host, Monique. If you want to learn more about time management, impactful leadership, mindset mastery, and energy efficiency, then you can now order my new book, the Time Method and a Bullshit Guide to Creating an Abundance of Time. Just go to www.thetimemethod.com or you can click the link in the show notes below. And please, I would love for you if you can share, rate, and review this podcast so many other people can find and benefit from it too. Thanks for tuning in. I really love to have you here. You're listening to Efficiency On Demand with Monique. Monique. So tell me about like what um, made you then your own commander in chief. So how did you transition from all of that to now let's bridge that gap between then and now? Sure. Okay. So imagine again, all of this crazy stuff that I had to go through. Yeah. So single parent uh, family, I had to figure out my identity, get myself through high school, college, grad school, massive debt out of law school, a quarter million. Mm -hmm. um, don't try Don't try this at home, kids. Don't go to law school. In Germany, you mm -hmm. don't have to try that. <laughs> Yeah, well, at least if you're going to go to law school, you know, go in Germany or France or whatever, just not yeah, here. Yeah, for real. <laughs> and then trying to survive in New York, just, you know, periods of unemployment, uh, going through the recession, not being able to, to get a job as a lawyer, then having to kind of um, grab onto something just to, to make an income. So to go into finance, you know, you get a project, you're like, yeah, great. Then the project ends, you're crap out of luck. <laughs> And then with now a wife and then a kid and then a second kid. And then at some point when I actually, right when I started my coaching business, Master the Talk Consulting, my younger daughter at two months was diagnosed with cancer. So it's kind of like, you know, mm. okay, like, come on, come on already. <laughs> you know, thank God she's, she's fine. We went through, I don't know how many cancer treatments, 11, 12, something like that. We're very fortunate to be in New York where the best specialist is in the world. Her pediatrician saved her life. So it's kind of like you start, start going from a place of like, like, why, why are you doing this to me? Like what? I didn't have enough. And again, and again, and again, and again to saying, okay, I have to own my problems. Like I'm the one with the debt and I'm the one that has to figure out my life and figure out my profession and whom I serve and how to make money and how to build a business. That's maybe the single biggest insight. Part of that, actually, your specialty, one of your specialties is time management, right? That's that's the single biggest and most important insight, maybe in some ways the most subtle. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the non-renewable resource. That's it. That's Everything else can more or less be renewed or bought. When you start figuring out, okay, I have to box out the wrong people, I have to box out the wrong tasks, and I have to actually get my get my shit together. Because at that point, my my proverbial stuff is is just is not in order. Things are very reactive. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to find opportunities with the wrong people with wrong alignment. I didn't know what I was aligning to. 
Yeah. And at some point, it's just like, I'm done. I, I, I can't. So I started saying no and no and no and no. The principle being nine out of 10 times, you say no. I don't care. It doesn't fit. I don't care how shiny it is. Not for me. And then just blocking out time, making it more valuable, whatever is open, charging more for it, finding ways through PR and media to increase my profile. Basically, I started accumulating all these different insights, you know, partly through reading self-help articles, books, figuring out my own lessons from all of those different careers. Again, I'm in my sixth career. So law, finance, tech, uh, neuroscience, um, and coaching slash consulting, right? So you pick up a lot of things just by being curious and open to new new ways of things, seeing things. At some point, you know, being a coach and having seen a lot and trying to understand the data set, why, let's say, the best people leave the best companies and why they're misaligned and how to how to help them figure out their story and then the breadcrumbs lead to what they should be doing next. After doing that for a while... I'm like, okay, I got to write a book. I got to write a book because, yeah, you know, everyone has to write a book. So I'm starting to write the book. This is about two years ago. And, you know, it's all about, oh, you know, how to negotiate a great deal, how to ace the interview, figure yourself out, all that stuff. So it's mostly dealing with other people, partly dealing with your own nonsense. I'm like, how do I do that? And then I had an insight, again, you know, my, my belief system, I believe that God sent me this insight because it, it truly just, you know, it, it, it wasn't anywhere in there and it just popped in. I was like, look, you're missing three quarters of the picture, right? So that turned into four subjects. So yes, one of them is dealing with other people and how do you optimize that? How do you add value, derive value for yourself? You know, and how do you do that for, uh, let's say, employees, bosses, investors, advisors, vendors, whatever, but also, yeah, your wife, your kids, your, your mom. That grew into, wait a minute, without health, without, you know, having, all of this is about conversation. Mm-hmm. You have to have the right conversation in your mind, with your body, with other people, and with God or the universe. It's, mm-hmm. it's all about language and psychology, which again, are the two lenses through which I see the world. Yeah. Right. So that's all of this kind of like you do the the washing machine, you do the drying, you kind of like get it soiled out in the world, you try it out and you kind of, you know, do it a few times eventually you start seeing things that, that stand the test of time. So for me, it was those four conversations. Health, so you have to listen to your body and not run after fad diets. You have to approach things with an 80-20 mindset because, again, you don't have to be an endurance athlete. You just have to be healthy enough consistently to be able to enter a higher cognitive state where you can do your best work, impact people in, you know, through the channel that God gave you the strongest energy through, and then... Do it long enough and you'll achieve certain things. Mm-hmm. And then number two is your mind. You have to organize what the hell's going on in there. Because again, keep in mind, I've told you a story about you know what, what I went through, all the mumbo jumbo that got collected in there. So I, it, it took a lot of work to just even like understand what the hell is in there. And then mm-hmm. get out of that room where everything is anxious and, and, and pressing and you know, the amygdala is the, the boss there. To get out of that place and say, okay, how do I organize my time? How do I manage expectations? How do I make decisions? How do I process information? How do I manage a business, manage my career, manage uh, you know, uh, finances? Life skills that I did not have by virtue of graduating from supposedly an Ivy League school and then law school. Zero, zilch, imagine. So I had to learn all of those things you know, pretty traumatic stuff when you have to do it, you know, with a wife and kid and massive dead and living in New York. But I started realizing that, so those four conversations are the bedrock of 
a virtuous cycle that lets you check in with each and each one influences the others. Mm -hmm. Without health, you have nothing. Without a brain that's focused and organized and doing the right things consistently, blocking out the garbage, you're not going to get far. Mm -hmm. Without dealing with other people, you're not going to get much business, right? You're not going to be able to go forward in your career. You got to do it, even if you're not so good at it. You have to fig figure it out. And then the last one, again, this is part of my journey, and I, I strongly believe in this. I really believe it's the capstone, because if you don't understand, you know, why did you make me suffer, God, universe, whoever, right? Or random, random, <laughs> randomness. Why did you make me suffer? If you don't understand that, if you don't understand how you fit into the grand scheme of things within the universe, even if it's that kind of progression from like, you know, massive galaxies all the way down to subatomic particles and where you, where you fit in that, if you don't understand that, if you don't find a place in the world, you'll, you'll never really be able to achieve your full potential because you don't know whom you're serving, what your story, what, what power lies in your story. Mm -hmm. And you won't have the organization to bring off what you're meant to bring off. Yeah. So for me, it's if you want to think of it as an image, I actually like this. It seems like a totally banal image, but a drone. A drone has four propellers, and all of them have to be working in concert, right, through some kind of central operating unit in order for the drone to fly all the way up to give you a 30,000-foot view or to zoom in on any one part of your landscape and then accelerate, decelerate, go left and right. So the idea is that this is... This is not just like a nice collection of self-help subjects. It's, it's really, truly a philosophy. Mm -hmm. And my, my goal here is to do nothing short of create a philosophy that somebody can use regardless of what their station is in life, what their level of wealth is, their background, you know, the, the crazy shit that they had to go through. They can apply these principles and, you know, specific, you know, tasks and use specific tools and resources and frameworks in order to build themselves up mm -hmm. to where they are in control of themselves, which means you know, I'm my own commander in chief. Yeah, I love that. I always say that I can look at someone's desk and know exactly what's going on in their mind. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> it's true. Organized because, chaos. Yeah, because the thing is, you know, a lot of times people actually don't really either understand or they're not aware that everything from the inside reflects to the outside and back basically, right? So if you have a lot of mind clutter, even though you may not hear it or you may not aware of it, but if you're really stressed, overwhelmed, whatever, you will literally put everything on your desk and it's super chaotic. It's not clean, whatever. Most of the yep. times you don't see anything on my desk, but my laptop, one notebook and one pen. And There's nothing else. And I know exactly for myself, if I put anything else on this table, I'm like looking at my table, I'm like, wait, something is not right here. And not because the stuff lies there, but because something must be going on in here that makes me put things there that don't belong. They just don't belong mm -hmm. on a working table. Like you don't need anything else but the tools to work with, right? It's the same like yep. with the people. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to say that. I'm so sorry if you feel offended now. Uh, for all of my listeners, but if you have like 85 and a half tabs open in 15 different browsers. Guilty as charged. <laughs> but is, what are you doing with all of these tabs other than running your CPU down on your laptop or your PC? Like, 
It's not going to get yeah. any faster. And you won't find shit on all of these tabs, I promise you. So <laughs> it's just another of these things, you know. It's, it's very insightful and people just often don't see the correlation. And I think that's like very interesting, for sure. Yeah. I have a little bit different, uh, quite, quite a different perspective on this than I think you do. I, I look at it like this. Yeah, procrastination is, is very, the problem is when you think of things as procrastination, everything is, is guilt and shame and you dig a hole, dig a hole, dig a hole, dig a hole. The trouble that I've, I've found, in the end, it's your standards. If you have high standards for yourself, for the content you consume, for the people that you deal with, those standards will start pulling you up out of the hole of procrastination. I don't even think, again, this is not going to win me much, you know, in terms of popularity contests, but I figure, why not share? I think the way I have set things up. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I spent time on Facebook. By the way, that's that's how I know about your awesome work, right? <laughs> but I've set it up in a way that it gives me a lot of very useful information for business. How are people doing certain things? I'm, I'm not looking at people's lunch pictures or, I don't know, their vacation pictures. I, I don't give a damn. God bless, but that's not why I'm there. Right, so nominally, yes, I'm I'm wasting time on Facebook, but actually, it's very goal-directed behavior. And because I have high standards for the people that I read from, or the people whose posts I look at, or content that I consume, in the end, that's my way of not actually saying it's procrastination, right? And it's the same idea with, I guess, time management. Yeah, I mean, you you clearly you want to create boundaries because your time will disappear. However, sometimes you have to leave a little bit of room open for something new, for something unusual, for something that is not rational mm-hmm. to engage with that person. I'll give you an example. Actually, a guy reached out to me. I have, I mean, you, I'm sure you get also hundreds and hundreds of messages on LinkedIn every week. It's become almost like spammy. And one guy reaches out from California, runs some, some institute. I don't know why. I have no idea. But again, you trust intuition at some point. And I'm like, I don't know why, but I'm, I'm, I just I have a strong feeling I have to talk to this guy. Mm-hmm. Okay, I get on the phone, you know, 30 minutes, and we're talking way past. I'm like, wow. It turns out his work is highly complementary to the stuff in my book. So we're actually, we're going to end up partnering. If I would have just automatically shut down oh, it's just another blah, 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 another spammer, scammer. I wouldn't have had that conversation. That would not have resulted in potentially a partnership and, and something much greater. Yeah. So you have to, if you think about it like this, you have a cell membrane, right? So let's say you're talking about your neurons, you eat your fish oils, good for you. Your membranes of your cells are integral, right? But even, even those membranes that are integral because of your fish oil consumption, they have receptors. And the receptors are very selective for certain chemicals, right? So imagine you have this membrane and suddenly you have a receptor that opens up, pops in there, and it allows certain neurotransmitters that around, uh, maybe it allows something to come in and create energy, ADP, right? So if you look at nature, as a model for behavior, sometimes you find some really great models. So for me, it's like that. I, I, I will not just magically abandon, let's say, all the art films I've seen or all the classical music that I've heard over the years. That's part of me. Yeah, I mean, it's nominally wasting time because, you know, I, I go hmm. deep into something, but 
it brings me back to myself. It helps me to remember who I really am. And it helps keep my membrane both integral and open enough for new information and new ways of seeing the world. In fact, this book, there's absolutely zero chance that it would have been about all four of those conversations if I if I were not open to something else. Because I just I just created this mass <laughs> of new work for myself after already right. raising money from pre-orders. And it's like, yeah. are you nuts? But the book turned out to be dramatically more interesting and useful mm-hmm. because of that. I also was able to get a better publisher and all that stuff. Yeah. So sometimes you have to just kind of know through your intuition that, yeah, nominally I'm wasting time. I'm, I'm going down all these crazy rabbit holes on every subject from time management to decision-making and wargaming and then whatever. But holy crap, somehow... Because I'm an integrator, I'm a strategist, that's my role in life, whatever, I eventually will coalesce all of those things into one place. For me, it was this, you're probably going to be horrified. One email chain where I literally would write down my thoughts. So this subject, colon, this insight, or this quote, or this link. And imagine, I mean, forget tabs, forget all the, the strings. Like eventually the Gmail crashes because it's just too many strings, too many threads. But nevertheless, even despite my suboptimal organization, somehow it all came together. Yeah, I got a developmental editor. That really helps. But <laughs> things sometimes take longer to come together because, yeah, they're more complex. Yeah, they're nuanced. They're not clear. But you're always building that membrane. It's all about keeping it both integral and open to new things. Yeah. And I don't think I was going at all and like wasting time or procrastination with like all of these open tabs, but rather with like you cluttering your mind and you giving yourself rather the, the very easy option to distract yourself and that's very different from procrastination because I use procrastination for example as a tool to be more creative and um, there's a big difference Ah, okay yeah there's a big difference between like procrastination and distracting yourself and like shiny objects and everything you know but if you have for example like five browser windows with each of them 80 tabs open not only is your laptop going to be slower but you will be so distracted because every time you're looking for something you have 85 different other options to look for something else so you will distract yourself or find shiny objects that are basically in the way right and i don't call this procrastination because i think people misunderstand what procrastination is actually about and what you shared about the uh, time management part with you know like having this connection with this guy I actually, and it's very interesting. The, I don't know if you read my book already or if you if you ordered it, I'm not sure. I, I didn't finish enough of it to have an educated opinion. I will. I <laughs> That's okay. Um, so basically what I share is I have different versions of it. So I have time management yep. and energy efficiency. And time management mm-hmm. for me is really just like everything from goal setting, breaking it down into action steps, planning, scheduling, and really making it uh, digestible basically for you. Whereas energy efficiency for me is everything about like getting rid of the toxicity in your life, whether that's materialistic or, you know, people or whatever. And also being very diligent about where you spend your energy. And I don't think it's wasting energy if you follow your intuition. Never. I have a really big topic on intuition. I was like, always follow it. So if you feel called to follow that, you can't waste it, even if there wasn't a connection coming out of it. So 
we basically yeah, agree on, on all of the things. So I think that's really cool. <laughs> so we're almost at the end and I have it's, two more It's questions. a little bit different language, yeah. but I think the approach is similar. Yeah, yeah I think so, sure. definitely. It's, it's kind of like coming from different places, but yeah. in the end, it's, I think it's a very similar viewpoint, which I appreciate. Yeah, absolutely. So I have two more questions for you before we're going to wrap this up, which I ask all of my guests. So first mm -hmm. of all, I would love to know what does efficiency mean to you? What does efficiency mean to me? Well, I think it's pretty simple by this point. It's not an academic subject. It's very much, there are three kids. They all have to do their Zoom, go to school, get fed, put to bed. Efficiency means having some kind of life left over, intellectual life, marriage, <laughs> other, let's say, friendships, having time for that, despite nominally being swamped and being always busy and, you know, finding a way to do things in an organized way, but also keeping that openness, which I mentioned. Mm -hmm. So efficiency is, is basically more or less cutting away all the junk and all the wrong people and leaving whatever is left in some kind of digestible order that can allow you to maybe get sleep once in a while, you know, or maybe like yeah, take a vacation. Yeah. And, and, and not always be thinking about, oh my God, emails from my clients. Right. Yes. So for me, it's, it's actually, it's a very, I would say pedestrian, non-academic uh, view of what efficiency is. And nice. that's coming from a totally different place where it was like, well, you know, the, the thermodynamic laws <laughs> get out of here. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> Um, last question. If you had to push the reset button on your life, so basically you keep everything that you know for now, but you have to push the reset button and you need to get back to success, which of the three things mm -hmm. would you keep doing to get back where you are today? I would definitely start with time management. Again, my, my version may be a little bit, again, maybe it's just my formulation because I'm not a time management expert, but it would still be very much say no a hell of a lot to mm -hmm. the wrong people and, and opportunities and all that stuff. Block out the wrong things so that you have mental energy and focus for the right things, right? I would still use the capabilities that I have based on my life mission, values, outcomes, and role. Those are the four pillars of my methodology. I would apply the same results of that analysis to, let's say, start a business or to help clients start a business or change careers. You know, that's, that's always there. You have to go back to your default lenses with which you see the world. For me, that's language and psychology. And again, you have to value your time enough so that others value it a lot as well. That means you can charge a lot and you can deliver high quality to people that are not nickel and diming. And on some level, just by virtue of, hey, I've had all this experience in all these different industries and all these different functions and all that stuff, I can help pretty much anybody improve their business, grow their business, figure out how to do their HR better, uh, coach their employees. So it, it would be pretty much all of the same kinds of zone of genius kinds of things. What I'm best at, where I had the most value and what I enjoy the most. And great things happen from there, provided that you have, you create the focus for yourself. Amen. I love it. Yuri, please tell everyone where they can buy the book and where they can find you. And then we're already at the end. Wow. This is, this is an awesome conversation. Thank you. Thank you for steering it like this. Really, really refreshing. Thank you. 
So to find me, you can go to yurikruman.com, Y-U-R-I-K-R-U-M-A-N. That leads to both my coaching and my consulting businesses. It's going to have information about my book. There's also a pre-order link in the show notes. Please feel free to get in touch. I'm, you know, I'm pretty open to hearing from people that, that you know are somewhere in a similar journey. Anything I can do to help, I'm happy to do so. Awesome. Well, as you know, guys, you find all of the links down below in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe so you can hear more stories like Yuri's. And Yuri, thank you so much for taking the time coming on and sharing all of your insights and your amazing story and background. It was really, really interesting to hear. Same for me, Monique. Thank you very much for having me. It's a real pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Efficiency On Demand. On Demand. We hope you've learned that you too can unlock your ultimate potential, how to control your time, create some clarity in your crazy life, and how to live life limitless. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to the podcast and please follow on Instagram at the Monique Lindner. We'll see you next time on Efficiency On Demand with Monique. Remember to slow down to speed up.